Chapter 6. Gastroenterology. Topic 1. Salivary glands. Our first topic will be on sialolithiasis and sialadenitis. Let's start with a basic understanding of sialolithiasis and sialadenitis. This condition is characterized by the formation of stones and the subsequent obstruction within the salivary ducts. These obstructions can block the flow of saliva, leading to potential complications and discomfort. When we talk about the clinical presentation, individuals with sialolithiasis often report a localized unilateral painful swelling. This swelling can be identified either at the angle of the mandible or right in front of the ear. Some patients may present with intermittent pain and swelling. During a physical examination, a physician might even palpate the stone. And in situations where there's a superimposed infection due to the obstruction, the patient might also exhibit fever. For diagnostics, there's a suite of tools at our disposal. Plain films or CT, for instance, are quite valuable. Since the majority of these stones are radiopaque, they can be easily visualized. Another non-invasive method to detect these stones is through sonograms. But the gold standard when it comes to diagnosing sialolithiasis is sialography. This diagnostic method not only locates the stone, but also gives a detailed view of the salivary ducts. Once there's a confirmed diagnosis, the next step is management. In some cases, simply applying manual compression and manipulation might help in dislodging the stone. Another method involves the use of silagogues, which are substances that stimulate saliva production. For larger stones, advanced techniques might be necessary. Shockwave lithotripsy is one such method, which employs sound waves to fragment the stone into smaller pieces, making it easier to pass. Then there's sialoendoscopy, a procedure where a small camera is inserted into the duct, allowing for direct visualization and possible removal of the stone. Next, we'll review the intricacies of acute peritidis. Acute peritidis is an inflammation of the parotid gland. The etiology of this condition can be diverse. Infectious agents, particularly Staphylococcus aureus and the mumps virus, are known culprits. However, it's not just infections that can lead to acute peritidis. Individuals with a history of chronic vomiting, as seen in conditions like anorexia and bulimia, may also be predisposed. Furthermore, dehydration, poor oral hygiene, and xerostomia can precipitate this condition. It's also worth noting that certain populations, such as the elderly or those in postoperative recovery, may be more susceptible due to their debilitated states. Now, when we consider the clinical presentation, there are several telltale signs and symptoms. The hallmark is a painful unilateral enlargement of the parotid gland. However, there are instances where a bilateral enlargement is observed. This could potentially indicate a systemic process at play, such as Sjogren's syndrome, bulimia, or an infection like mumps. Other accompanying features may include edema, erythema, and fever. In cases with a bacterial etiology, one might even observe a purulent discharge from either Wharton's or Stenson's duct. Diagnostically, acute peritidis is primarily a clinical diagnosis, but additional tools can help in confirmation and ruling out other conditions. A sonogram offers a non-invasive visualization of the gland. Moreover, radiographs or sialography might be employed, especially to exclude the possibility of calculus sialadenitis. In terms of management, the approach is multifaceted. The use of sialagogues, such as lemon wedges or hard candy, can be beneficial. These agents increase salivation, which can aid in the expectoration of pus and infectious contents. Proper hydration is crucial, and in many cases, 
It's the simplest yet most effective intervention. Additionally, for bacterial infections, especially those suspected to be due to MRSA, antibiotics such as vancomycin or linezolid might be prescribed. The final disorder of the salivary gland we'll review is parotid neoplasia. Firstly, let's discuss the potential risk factors. Smoking is known to be a significant risk, as is radiation exposure. Patients with Sjogren's syndrome, an autoimmune condition, are also at an increased risk for developing parotid gland neoplasms. In the realm of parotid neoplasia, there's a diverse array of tumors. The most common benign, and indeed the most common overall salivary gland tumor, is the pleomorphic adenoma, often termed a mixed tumor. Though benign, there is a small potential for it to undergo malignant degeneration. Other benign entities include the Wharton's tumor, which affects men more than women, the oncocytoma, and benign lymphoepithelial cysts. On the malignant front, mucoepidermoid carcinoma stands out as the most prevalent malignant salivary gland tumor. However, other malignancies like adenoid cystic carcinoma and eosinic cell carcinoma also play a role, and it's worth highlighting that in the setting of long-standing Sjogren's syndrome, lymphoma may develop as a complication. When it comes to clinical manifestations, a painless unilateral enlargement at the angle of the mandible is often the first sign patients notice. However, more sinister symptoms can emerge, particularly in the case of malignant tumors. If the tumor infiltrates cranial nerve 7, patients might experience facial pain or even paralysis. Additionally, local lymphadenopathy can suggest the presence of a tumor. For diagnosing these neoplasms, fine needle aspiration can be an invaluable tool. It provides a relatively quick assessment of the cellular makeup of the mass. To further ascertain the extent of tumor growth and to aid in pre-surgical planning, imaging studies such as CT or MRI are also performed. Management is tailored based on the nature of the tumor. For benign tumors, the treatment of choice is a superficial peritidectomy. It's essential to ensure wide margins during this procedure, given the high recurrence rate with incomplete excision. In the case of malignant tumors, a more aggressive approach is required, often involving a total peritidectomy combined with the excision of the facial nerve.